So our theme this year at the, at the 2022 Res City Retreat is love one another. And, you know, we just thought, like, what, what do we want to hone in on? What do we find to be essential in this time that we're living in right now? Um, and just, uh, you know, getting practical and, and really deepening understanding of loving uh, and that concept of Christ-like love, we just felt like was was important. And so we're going to be talking about that today, you know, in my talk here and the breakouts that are going to be happening here a little later on, getting more practical, you know, digging into this topic even more. We're going to talk about love one another. So we're not going to be talking about, uh, we're not going to be connecting this into our sermon series that we've been doing this summer in Jeremiah. But, and by way of introduction, I want to bring this up. There is actually a connection to the passage I want to talk about today and Jeremiah. So the series title for Jeremiah that we're doing is Build and Plant. And if you remember from that first sermon that we we did where we talked about Jeremiah's call, his commission from God, um, he's given this task to uproot and tear down and to build and to plant. Okay, now that imagery there, both both uproot and tear down and build and plant, which is our series title in Jeremiah, is of a garden and of a building that God is constructing or growing through the prophet's words. And in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about Christian leadership and what he and other Christian leaders are up to. And he uses these same two images. Uh, he talks about his work in plant and, and other Christian leaders and their work in planting a garden and then constructing a temple or a building. Now, I've talked about this bef- before a little bit, I think, at other Red City things, but this is, a, this is like when I think about what I'm doing as a pastor, this has been really, really influential on me as to kind of think about like the, the task that I'm putting myself towards. Now, I want to focus on the building part of this today. Okay, so here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 12 and 13. If anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation he said just earlier is Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So he says, you can build a temple out of, um, you know, two types of material. Okay. The material on the one hand that that you would build with would be gold, silver, uh, or costly stones. And the other hand, you'd have wood, hay, or straw. Now wood, hay, and straw are easy material to build with. Um, It's easy to find, it's cheap, it's easy to construct with. You don't have to be that specialized of a builder to use uh, those materials. But the problem is that it doesn't last if it catches fire. So Paul, if he wants to build God's house, like he sees it as his job to do, he needs to use something more heavy duty than that. Uh, Gold, silver, and costly stones, which also are, you know, much more beautiful, much more aesthetically pleasing. But, uh, you know, those are a little bit more difficult to build with. Like you need some special training uh, to be a stonemason or to work with gold and silver, right? So it's not as easy to do, okay? But the the thing is that these materials will last through anything. 
Now, Paul doesn't say what qualities he's trying to put into the church that he's he started uh, that correspond to these two things. Now, I have some guesses at you know what could be wood, hay, and straw, and, and you'll actually talk about this a little bit in your uh, discussion groups afterwards. Um, but I do think if we could ask him, what is the gold, silver, and costly stones? He'd say that the stuff he talks about as the book of 1 Corinthians moves on, which is just a letter, as this letter moves on, um, and specifically in chapter 13, he says there, faith, hope, and love is what we ought to seek, with love being the most important of those things. So if I'm right, and that is what he might say is the gold, silver, or costly stones that the church needs as its building materials, if it's going to last and honor God, then we as a church want to be building that into our culture, our discipleship, our leaders, our community groups, our messages, our events that we do, just all of that stuff, so that we as a church can stand up to whatever fiery furnaces we might go through, whatever trials we might go through, even up to the final judgment, which is what I think Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 3. So, uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and I'm going to read the whole, it's only 13 verses, um, plus I'm going to tack on a, a verse from the end of chapter 12. Okay, I'm going to read that whole thing for us here, and then we will uh, we'll dive right into it. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31, uh, starting right here. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So, uh, you know, I'm going to guess you've all probably heard this before, and that's not even like a, you know, like I assume you all grew up in the church or something. I think most people have heard some portion of that, and it's probably, if you have, probably been at a wedding, which is kind of weird, right? Because if you read the whole thing, like you can tell <laughs> that it's not, you know, about weddings or romantic love. And, you know, you'd think we would hear this more often in, in other contexts now. 
listen, if you, and by the way, if you use this for a wedding, um, right, don't worry. I'm not calling you out because I still think this is, this is good, a good reflection for marriage because love in marriage is similar to this kind of love that Paul is talking about that is needed to uh, sustain a community. Okay? But really what's going on is, is that this has everything to do with the issues in the Corinthian church. Okay, so here, here's some of the issues. Just a few of these. Okay? There's actually a lot of issues that get covered in this book, um, but uh, some of them stem from conflict or you know issues between the actual people of Corinth, the Church of Corinth, and each other. Say, so chapter six, um, they're suing one another. They are not able to resolve conflict well. Uh, so they they're literally leaving. The church and going to you know outside civil authorities to get them to solve their problems, um, and man, you know you know you read you read through that and you just kind of think, can you imagine that happening? You know, in our I can't imagine that happening in Red City, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but I mean, it is, it's kind of wild wild to think that that you know that was possible. Okay, uh, chapter eight, people are paying little attention to each other's consciences um, by going and eating at these local pagan uh, festivals and eating meat, e- eating meat specifically sacrificed to, to other gods there. And what the problem was there is that you have some people that are more concerned with their proper theology or rights than other people's consciences. Um, you know, they were willing to assert their rights at others' expense. Um, and this was causing a lot of issues for Paul. Okay? Or, or chapter 11, they're treating the Lord's Supper like it's a dinner party for the wealthier members and they're neglecting these poor latecomers who come uh, later because they have to work later. Okay, So there, you know, there's some people that are viewing the church services in some way about their own benefit. And then uh, finally, in chapter 12, which kind of takes us up to this point, you have some people who are looking down on others because they don't have certain uh, spiritual gifts. And so they're not as special of Christians as the ones who do have them. And Paul often uses a word um, in, in 1 Corinthians to describe people who are, you know, uh, doing stuff like this as uh, puffed up. Literally, it's puffed up, okay? It gets translated like proud or boasting a lot of times, but you should think like they've been enlarged, like they have a big head. And uh, a New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight, and he's kind of reflecting on the issues of the Corinthian church, says that what was going on is that these people are concerned with something that scholars call the cursus honorum, which is just Latin for the course of honor. Okay, this is the path to honor, a common Roman life path where you would be desperately seeking this upward track that would eventually lead you to a place of honor. And this would often require competition and could be kind of a zero-sum game. Now, you know, you'd have people doing this in all sorts of different spheres, but it has been seeping into the church. And so these people are saying, you know, that these spiritual gifts, or they're believing these spiritual gifts could help them to do that. And they're trying to use them and, and other things, I suppose, to try to gain honor over each other. Now, anytime you're in a, a social setting, I think, uh, no matter how small it is, you are aware of how you kind of stack up to the other people there. Okay, this would be in your place of work, in your, in your family, uh, on social media. It could be in our church. could be as, something as dumb as a softball team. Okay? But we're constantly comparing ourselves to others with some motivation to measure up to something, right? to, to have some kind of honor. And 
you know, even if we don't always act on it, it's probably going to pop up in the back of our mind about what we can do to maybe try to move up in that setting. So we're always doing this, and I think it's a, it's a pretty human thing to do that. And so because of that, every culture kind of seizing on that will create these paths, these curses and norms, these courses of honor that, you know, we can take to end up at a place of honor. So, you know, a common one I think today is like go to college, get good grades, get the right job marry the right person, have kids, retire, get rich, move to the suburbs, right? Just move up, ding, 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 check off all the boxes, get to that place of kind of what is an honored person in society. Um, it, it might be now maybe to have the right life experiences to make sure you're the kind of person that has experienced all these important things that you're supposed to have experienced. Um, it might mean to get to the right heights of your career and you're notching the right steps along the way to end up at this place of honor within your, uh, your, your job or your career field. Uh, Julie talked about this a, a few weeks ago. It might be eliminating any attachments to anything on you to end up at a place where you are truly and finally free of everything. Okay? All in the hope of carving out for ourselves some measure of respect or honor or identity for ourselves and, and it potentially needing to, you know, to fight other people to get them to notice you or honor your life choices or decisions. And often in the process, creating puffed up heads, creating proud or arrogant people as a result. Now, even our like outgroups and countercultural movements have this problem. Okay, just just think about this, right? As I as I was trying to think of an example, I kept coming back to the idea of hipsterism. All right, at first, and now hips, man, hipsters are like that's like ten years ago now at this point that I feel like I think that this kind of all started to really happen. What I'm about to describe here, but at first, being a hipster meant that you were very counter to the culture. So you're saying I don't care about these value systems, these course. To, courses of honor of the people around me and so I'm going to act very counter to that you know by wearing tight jeans and flannel and just generally being uh you know very against all these these different things right and generally in the process starting to think you're better than all the people around you well it turns out that thinking you're cooler than anyone else is actually pretty cool and it kind of makes everyone else want to follow it too and so pretty quickly Hipsterism became very mainstream and it kind of in and of itself became a sort of course of honor to gain uh, social capital and show that you're not just some mindless drone, but you are an honored individual who can, you know, reject everything else around you. Okay, but that became cool. And so everybody was doing it and it itself became kind of the thing I think it set out to try to reject. Now, the point of 1 Corinthians 13 is to respond to what the Corinthians are actually concerned with and that we are so often concerned with. Our public profile, our power, our prestige, our honor within any given community, specifically in the church. And Paul wants to deflate these puffed up heads a little bit. And so he points to a hierarchy of things that are important to God. He kind of gives an upside down path or course to honor or glory. And this is what uh, he says in 1231, earnestly desire the greater gifts, yes, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Now, way there can uh, be translated, or it's probably more literally translated as path or journey or 
course, okay, a life path to honor or glory. I will show you the most excellent life path to honor or glory, but the kind that God determines and values. See, I don't think Paul has any issue with seeking honor or glory, but he has uh, a very radical way to do it that he is offering the Corinthians that is shaped by Jesus himself, by his words, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so Paul says the path to true honor and glory comes by embracing faith, hope, and most of all, love. Now, Paul is going to address, the, chapter 13 is really all about love, and he's going to address love from four angles. And this, these are taken from uh, Michael Gorman, a uh, New Testament scholar. He, he breaks up these four, uh, breaks up the chapter in, into four angles. Okay, so we're going to talk about these four angles today. Uh, first of all, love's necessity. That's verses one to three, love's necessity. Love's character. That's verses four to seven. Love's permanence, verses 8 to 12. And finally, love's superiority, verse 13. So let's start by talking about love's necessity, verses 1 to 3. Let me read that again. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So here's what Paul's saying. Essentially, you can do all kind of cool things that are really awesome. Everyone thinks they're great. These are using gifts from God even. Okay? And he talks about these things that the Corinthians had value on and that God had gifted them with. Okay? Uh, speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, uh, and, and fathoming all mysteries and all knowledge. So uh, tongues, prophecy, knowledge. Um, if you have such a robust faith that you can do incredible things with it, if you give over all you have to the poor, right? This is something you know, we would highly value in our culture today. If you, do, you can do all these things, but if you don't do them out of love, out of Christ-like love, they have they're no value whatsoever. They're, they're actually, in the grand scheme of things, totally pointless. Paul's saying that love must be the central ingredient in all we do and use that God has given us. Jesus himself had said, uh, before Paul ever has his issues with the Corinthians, that, that this is what he wanted to be the distinctly Christian trait. In John 13, 35, he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus doesn't say, you'll be known as my disciples because you are going to be the smartest people in your society. You'll be the wealthiest and best looking and you'll have the nicest houses and be the most obvious, blessed and happy. You know, you've accomplished all your goals. Nothing bad happens to you. You, you don't go through hard things. You're triumphant through whatever uh, comes along in your path. And this is how people will know that you're a Christian. Okay? No, Jesus doesn't say any of that stuff, right? Those are red herrings. So, you know, those, those things can be true of us or not true of us as a Christian and have 
absolutely no bearing on whether or not we are truly a disciple of Jesus. Nothing like that is promised and it doesn't do anything to mark out a disciple of his. Instead, Jesus says that it's love and specifically Christ-like love. Jesus says that love is the marker, the badge, the uniform, the name tag that we wear. And if the church is going to be known for anything, no matter what the society might value, it ought to be love. Now, unfortunately, I think, you know, it's not that hard to notice, or and it's fair to say that like in Corinth, today, some of our the church's issues stem from a lack of this kind of love. Okay? It's just honestly, like it's not a huge value for some people in the church. Okay? Because because they, we often can still be focused on the same things that they were at Corinth. And that is using what God has given us to accumulate things for ourselves and our own pleasure, our own agenda, our own plan. Okay, but I want you to seriously think about this, okay? God has given us all gifts, right? It could be the spiritual gifts that he's talking about in this passage or other ones, but also other things, okay? Your talent, your money, uh, your good, a good job that you might have, an education that you were able to attain, um, a good family, good friends, good connections, a good support network, all these different things. You know, we should see them as, as gifts from God. Okay, but imagine we looked at all these things that God had given us and whatever purpose we use it for in our life and we find that loving in a Christ-like way was not at the top of that list. Okay, if that's true, I think it's fair to say that it, at that at that point it quits become it quits being a gift from God and actually it becomes something that hinders us from growing more like Jesus it hinders the kingdom of God growing okay because that's what these gifts in Corinth were doing they were given by God but they weren't actually helping the Corinthians grow closer to God or be more like Jesus instead they are actually pushing them away from Jesus. When we use the gifts that God has given us without love, okay, this is the tragedy of that. We end up pushing God away. Think about the tragedy of that. For God to give us something that is supposed to build us up and for us, like the Corinthians, to turn around and just whack each other on the heads with those things. Okay, let's not allow ourselves to live that same tragedy out in our own lives and in our church. All right, love's character, number two here, verses four to seven. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So, okay, while the church has sometimes struggled to be marked by love as Jesus uh, desires, and as Paul is challenging the Corinthians to live a life out marked by love, outside of the church, love is very popular. And l- listen, that's, that's a, I think we should be glad about that. I think that's a good thing that our you know, culture values love. But the problem is, that what love actually means is 
like I can't tell a lot of times if I'm being totally honest. I, I don't actually know. I try to think sometimes like what is what does love actually mean based off of the use of the word in any given situation? And a lot of times I don't know what that is. All right. It's kind of just a marketing word now. Like it's a word we like to put in slogans to, you know, get our, uh, you know, to get our agenda or plan to happen because, you know, people like it. Okay. So you can put it on t-shirts or Coke bottles or something. Okay. Now I was actually doing a little bit of research on this. Um, and I found a really funny anecdote from an article by a guy named Lawrence Samuel talking about the same phenomenon. And he talks about in the 1970s, Southwest Airlines and this campaign that they had where they put love at the center of it, okay? So let me just read a, a section of this. Okay, Southwest in the 1970s decided to pull out all the stops in making consumers feel like they were loved. The airline, a, airline began calling their ticket kiosks, I'm not making this up, okay, love machines, which is a very odd thing to call them, I think, and it had its flight attendants deliver safety information in an unusually intimate way. Hi, I'm Suzanne, and we're so glad to have you on our love flight, passengers traveling from Dallas to Houston heard. And they were told to put on their seatbelts as, we don't want anything happening to you because we love you. Right after takeoff, a complimentary beverage called Love Punch was offered to passengers by the attendants who had shed their uniforms to reveal as the New York Times described it, tanned legs in tangerine hot pants. Dispensing of a bourbon or scotch-based love potion came next, with most passengers not surprisingly finding their short flight to be highly enjoyable. We loved having you, the stewardesses, who wore necklaces featuring a heart, told passengers as they deboarded, with many a businessman uh, looking forward to their return trip. Okay, I'll stop it there, okay? Kind of, kind of goofy, and you know, thankfully, like we've, we've kind of progressed from that level of ridiculousness. But like, there still is oftentimes you find love at the center of some marketing campaign, and it doesn't, you know, it's not. I don't even know what that means, right? I, if you could discern some definition of what love is from, you know, what Southwest was doing there, like props to you, like good, good on you, because I can't not think of it. Okay. Love doesn't really have anything to do with flights or cars or underwear, but here's the thing. It probably pulled well in some focus group and continues to do that well. And so these companies decide, hey, let's stick this in our branding. Now, think about, though, like what purpose love is serving, if that's the case, okay? It's for glory and honor and money. It's to get people to, you know, buy your product or use your service or to get excited about your thing that you're trying to get across, Okay? And that is about some American cursus honorum, some American path or course to glory. It's about accomplishing something, all right? And it plays into this wider path to accruing glory or honor. That's what love's purpose is there, okay? But love is not a slogan. It's not a cute phrase that we put on things to make some audience happy that we're really, you know, into love, okay? Instead, Love, at least what the kind of love that Paul's talking about here, looks like this, what he says here in chapter 13. And what stands out to me, there's a lot of things I could say about this, but what just stands out to me really, reading it right now, is how it's sacrificial. Like that is one of the key characteristics of love, all right? It gives up the opportunity to let anger or pride or jealousy or grudges fester in our hearts, which often feels good, 
when we are hurt. Instead, it gives up the claim that we might desire to hold over others who have hurt or wronged us in some way. We sacrifice that pleasure, that catharsis, just like Jesus sacrifices judgment on us. Okay, but more. It sacrifices our time, our agenda, our plan. Right? Like I do, we just talked about this. When love is a marketing strategy, it's all about a plan or some agenda. It's using that to get, you know, some glory or honor for itself. True love, on the other hand, is about sacrificing your plan, your agenda. And love is expressed as patience here. I think it's hard because that really messes with us because we live in a 100 miles a minute world where time is our most important resource because we use it to accomplish our plans, whatever our, our plans might be, okay? But love as patience makes us give up our plans sometimes as we bear with love seeing them, the people we're loving, as more important than our agenda. Uh, love also is willing to sacrifice peace, okay? This is a tough one for us maybe, especially as, as Midwesterners. Uh, love rejoices in the truth. That may, means that sometimes for the sake of someone's good, it, it does say what others may not want to hear, potentially disturbing the calm waters of Minnesota nice that we're always trying to tread in. Now, I could say more about all this. We could say a lot more about this, okay? But I do want to just ask, like, where does Paul get all this stuff? Like, is he making it up? Did he cook it up in some research lab in a sociology department? Or, you know, is he doing it in a focus group? Uh, no. It just is this. It's this simple. It's him seeing how God expresses his own love through Jesus and reflecting on it, meditating on it, living it out within a community. This is, how this, this is the same Paul who writes in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sacrificed his right to be angry or disappointed with us for our own failures, our own wrongdoings, our own falling short of what he's called us to be and the mess of human existence that it has led to. God sacrifices in allowing a, a slowing down of his agenda, his plan to do all of this, to redeem the world as he walks at our own slow pace. Listen, you don't think God wishes that we had a little bit more urgency and focus on living out his gospel in the world? You don't think his plan would move a little bit quicker if we weren't so distracted all the time? Uh, yeah, the answer is yes to that in case, you know, you're wondering. But regardless, God does walk with us at our pace in patience. God even gives up his power as creator, the power to literally speak things into existence that he could use to be coercive with us, to force us to do things, okay? It said he works with us. He even lets us resist him. He lets us be stubborn. He lets us reject his grace. He walks with us in patience and love. If we want to know what love is, we have got a really good picture of it and we just have to reflect on it. His name is Jesus and that kind of love has the power to transform us. All right, let's move on to love's permanence, verses 8 to 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness or maturity comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul's saying here that these gifts, the ones that he's specifically been talking about in this passage of prophecy, tongues, knowledge, all that stuff, it serves a purpose now in the present, a really important purpose, and it's, it is a gift given by God, but it has a limited use. It will only be effective for a certain amount of time. And to be mature is to focus on what will last when we come into full completeness and the world itself comes into full completeness. So think about it like this, okay? You can think about like uh, like like this uh, kind of analogy, okay? Imagine two neighbors are each building a house. They're two people, they live right next door to each other. They just both happen to be building new houses from the ground up at the same time, okay? Now, and they talk and they both come to this realization that in 10 years, a new kind of termite that eats all kinds of wood, except for one, will be all over the U.S., so in the meantime, right now, all other types of wood that, you know, would be susceptible to this termite, they are much cheaper. And you can build bigger and better houses out of it, though ones which won't last when these termites are everywhere. So one person, one of these neighbors, uh, chooses to build an amazingly impressive house out of this, what is now cheap wood, uh, towering over the neighborhood. They have a beautiful three-car garage. It's three stories tall. It's just, it's fantastic. It's a very beautiful house. There's a lot to it. The other one, using this wood that's a little more expensive, a little more difficult to, to build with sometimes, uh, use it, or builds, uses it to build a more modest house, but one that is built fully of the one wood that these termites cannot eat. In 10 or 15 years, which of these two builders would we say was more prudent? The way it works with gifts is kind of like this, okay? In the present, these sort of more exciting, flashy gifts that Paul is talking about here, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues, okay? But I think, you know, again, to, to get to this a little bit more, to make it a little more relevant, think of other things that draw attention from people to the church or to ourselves, okay? Um, because that's what these gifts were supposed to do in Corinth's setting, okay? Uh, it could be any one of these things, right? They matter and they help in the present. These, these gifts that are about charisma, they're charismatic, they, they kind of draw people in, okay? Um, they help and they do matter in the present, and we can build some really impressive stuff out of them, okay? And Christians have built some really impressive-looking stuff from these sometimes, okay? And they are gifts that God has given us for the furtherance of the kingdom. We need them, Okay? But one day, God will build his kingdom on earth fully as it is in heaven, just like we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And it won't be built of prophecy, of tongues, of knowledge, of other gifts of charisma, things that grab attention. Okay? They will fade because they won't be necessary. Instead, Paul's saying, faith, hope, and most importantly, love will be the material that this kingdom that God is building, that Jesus is building, will be made out of. Okay, They're the wood that endures into the future, that will not fade, 
that is not in danger of eroding. If we want to be prudent, we need to be people that take that seriously. So in the meantime, if we are really going to plan for the future, if we're going to think ahead to what will matter down the road, what Paul calls maturity, okay? And listen, we, we do this all the time. At least we think we should be doing this all the time when it comes to our bank accounts, to planning for retirement, even with our physical health, right? With like how we eat or, you know, making sure we exercise or different things so that we, you know, think we're securing a good future for ourselves, right? Even if we don't do these things, we at least think we probably should be doing them. Okay, if we are willing to do it for those things, why wouldn't we major on the thing that matters now, okay, that is, is necessary now, as we'll talk about here in a second, has a certain level of superiority in its power, okay, but will also be essential to the future, okay, that will be the centerpiece of God's future. If you're going to master something, why would you not think ahead to master the thing that matters in the present and will also matter in the future because love is that thing and it is because of that is more important than other things we could pursue as Christians like that would we might not always be able to build things that seem as flashy or impressive or as big uh, as the other you know gifts of charisma could and it's not always going to get us the same level of attention but it is the centerpiece of God's future and it has been shown to us in Jesus Let's act like it, guys. Let's, let's act like we believe that that's true. All right, finally, verse 13, love superiority. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let me leave you with this. I want to wrap up uh, this, this talk here with this. Love, at the end of the day, it is what I think causes God's power, what is truly God's power to spread through the world. It's the thing that causes the power of God to be let loose to be unleashed, unchained, out into the world. Um, I can say this just from experience. In our efforts to spread in the neighborhood, to become fully known, to make an impact in people's lives, nothing like really flashy or, you know, charisma-based has been central to it. I think the most effective thing that we've done, when I look at, at what we've done, that to make inroads in the neighborhood, to make Red City be a place that people find attractive, even if they don't necessarily want to come here because they're not interested in Jesus for some reason, but they still find this place uh, compelling and they're, I think they're glad we're in the neighborhood, has just been through showing love. And there's a few reasons for that. I think, first of all, it's, it's disarming, but it's powerful, Right? Like I said, I'm not some superstar preacher. We're not going to be built on me or anyone else's probably like charisma. They're superstar gifts, okay? We're not going to become some mega conglomerate church based on those things. We don't have some strong, flashy media strategy that we're cooking up in the lab to get our content out in the world to create, you know, Red City Nation or something like that, right? And honestly, I don't think people really want that anyway because they can get it anywhere, Okay. It doesn't have to be in the church. If that's what they're looking for, it doesn't need to be in the church because I think people do want something more authentic, right? And the people that do have a negative view of the church or Christians in the city or neighborhood, they're not asking for us to be cool and flashy. Again, they can get that anywhere. That's not what they want the church to be, okay? They might expect us to try to do it and to use those things uh, to do stuff that they might expect Christians to do, even if they're wrong about, you know, in those expectations, okay? But when we show the love of Jesus, 
you can tell that it is disarming and it's powerful and it's unexpected, right? If people think, you know, people in a neighborhood think that the, the neighborhood is better off without the church in it, but then they start to see love being shown, that has the power to change hardened hearts and minds and maybe even make them interested. Uh, it, it's, also, it's also reciprocal and it's contagious. When people see it, they want to do it too even if they aren't Christians. And I've seen that firsthand when we have shown love to, I can think of specific times where we've shown love to people and, or they've seen us do love and they're not interested in Jesus, but there's something like Velcro about that. It catches them and they, they want to do it too, okay? There is just something about that that stirs the spirit of God that it works through. And ultimately it's what powers all we do because it's what powers what God does, okay? Think about this, God's power shown in Jesus to do things like heal the sick, restore the lost, even raise the dead, what is the power behind that? It's love. Okay, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, uh, God shows his love to us, that he died for us. He sent Jesus to uh, give us new life. It was his love that caused him to do it. That is what is ultimately, at the end of the day, the thing that powers what God is doing in the world. Why would we not want to keep developing that? Let's honor Jesus' desire for us. Let's take the greater path that Paul calls us to. Let's be known for love in our church and out of it. All right, so our breakouts uh, from here on out are going to uh, walk through... um, well, sorry, first you're being going to uh, some uh, discussion around this, and then you'll be heading to uh, some breakouts to dig into this topic uh, even more.